My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 4. Pendleton Sr. is going to kill his son. This is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss in life is what dies inside us while we live. Norman Cousins. Jamie Pendleton looked down at his watch as he had for every five minutes for close to an hour and a half. The children were still fixated on the television screen, just like he was obsessed with the plant. Weissman and Martyr were having a general conversation about the high cost of living when Jamie leaped to his feet. You can't live on money. They cut the budget like they say they're going to do, and then the poor people... Excuse me, Bernie, I have that commitment tonight, he said with a forced smile. Weissman seemed a little perturbed that Jamie had cut him off in mid-sentence. More than that, he probably didn't understand why his friend was leaving at all. Oh yes, uh, the secret mission, yeah, no hints about this at all, huh? He asked as he picked up Jamie's fur-lined snorkel jacket from the chair. It will only take a few hours, said Jamie, shrugging off the joking. Well, old friend, whatever it is, remember what the Romans would have said. Faberes quiesque fortune suai. And just what the hell does that mean? Scoffed Jamie as he put on his coat. Everyone's the architect of his own fortune, but then again, nobody's perfect, kidded Weissman. I'll remember that, he said seriously. Same old Bernie, he added, and he shook his hand. Well, good luck on uh, whatever your plans are, said Weissman. Thank you, he said as Mater arose from the rocking chair. You kids be good and do what Uncle Bernie tells you. You forget, Monsour, he said with a French accent. I have the power of the chocolate. I'll be back, he said, paying no attention to Weissman's antics. He kissed Marta briefly on the cheek. She followed him down the hallway to the stairway door. Now you be good now, he told her. You be careful, Jamie. I wish you'd just tell me what... When I get back, I'll lay the whole thing out for you. Okay, she said, pressing her lips together. He turned and opened the door. Goodbye, Mata. See you in a few hours, he said as he disappeared down the stairs and she closed the door. Jamie could see them looking out the window on the second floor next to the spire. The full moon was just rising over the roof of the house, casting a silver sheen over the slate tiles below. Temperature had dropped below zero now, and he zipped up his snorkel jacket to stop the cold wind. He hopped inside the car, the seat still crunchy from the cold. The car started right up, and he let it run for a few minutes before he pulled away from Bernie's apartment. No turning back now, Jamie, he said out loud, his, his breath seeming to vibrate toward the windshield with his words. The old man is going to be all done after tonight. He's gone too far this time and hasn't covered his own tracks, he said, shivering from the cold as he turned on the radio. The AM band was filled with French broadcasts from across the border, and he flipped the switch to FM. Back here at WQRZY, FM 101. Temperature's zooming down with a big minus five. Well, worry. that gets you where it counts. I told you, it's cold out there, enough to freeze your chihuahuas off if you're not careful. This is Ernie Sinsbury bringing you all the oldies here on a Friday night in August. 
Let's sweep through a row of the late John Lennon of the Beatles. From Rubber Soul, here and there and everywhere, she said, she said, and from their Revolver album, Tomorrow Never Knows. The songs began to play, and Jamie's mind was moving into the past with them, back to the day of his graduation and the final break with his father. He had thought his father had never understood his point of view. Conversely, his father perceived that his son had pushed him to the wall by continuously thwarting his well-designed plans. Jamie had refused an invitation to prep school, instead choosing to attend the local high school, and enrolling at a second-rate college like St. Argus College was totally incomprehensible to his father. All of these things and a thousand minor heartaches sat within his father. Final break, however, came on that graduation day when James Pendleton II announced he was marrying an area girl, a girl with no background, no status, no money, and some she was a farmer's daughter. And that waspy old man said that Jamie would be bringing an offspring into the family, an offspring of a dumb Canuck potato digger into the Pendleton fold. It was just too much for him to bear. Marta heard it all from the bench in the spacious hallway outside. It was probably the beginning of her guilt and feelings of insecurity with Jamie. What she did not want to hear, however, was the swift punch thrown by Jamie to his father's jaw, the blood trickling out of the corner of his father's mouth as he hit the floor. You wanted me to be just like you, you stupid fool. A carbon copy of the great James Pendleton. I am myself. I want more than just being able to run Pendleton Industries. I don't want your petty power, and I don't want to have to be in this town. She's a Canuck's daughter. She'll always be a Canuck's daughter, said his dark-haired father from the carpet. Jamie could visualize Marta's white farmhouse, still at that time heated by firewood. He could see the outhouse in the backyard and the ragged clothes of the two children, the old 1957 pickup truck filled with potatoes on its way to market. All of that life was colliding head-on with his father's carefully laid plans. I don't need you. Get out, shouted his father as he stood up. Get out and don't ever come back. You'll never see one cent of the Pendleton money if you marry that girl. I don't care about your damn money. I'd just as soon give it to beggars, he said, wiping his lip, than to give it to you in that, that trash. Jamie's eyes flared with rage as he moved right at his father, pummeling his face with quick punches. His father fell to the floor and Jamie hovered over him. I'd sooner rot in hell than not have my revenge on you. I'll kill you, so help me God, I'm gonna kill you, Jamie. Kill me? Kill me, will you? Then you'll be the one rotting in hell. And you with me for ruining my life. A small price to pay, cause I don't believe in hell. Now get out! Get out, I say! And he did get out. He married Marta after the graduation ceremony and left town forever. Until now. The words of his father still rang clearly in his mind, tolling consistently like the clock tower in the center of town. He was ready to pick up from those words spoken some 14 years in the past as if they had only been spoken six seconds before. He reached the road along the river and turned up the radio so it shook the car. The plant was still several miles down the river, but he could see the red lights outlining the central building. More than ever, without a second thought, he was ready to do anything to seek his revenge. It was his driving force, a force 
that he didn't even understand, a force that instructed him beyond his control to bury his father once and for all. St. Argus was like a tiny little kingdom in the wilderness. All of the subjects of the kingdom had their homes, ranging from the old farmhouses, the apartments of the industrial workers, and the moderate white-collar homes. All of the people existed for the benefit of those who were in power. Like the kingdom, they were separated from the seat of power, James Pendleton, by a half a mile of land in 126 years of wealth. His white mansion was located atop a round hill about a mile from the western ridges. Thirty feet of scrub oak embankment separated the house from the rest of the treeless hill, and an asphalt driveway wound around the top of the hill to the front of the mansion. The mansion was whiter in the bright moonlight as it stood as a monument to the Pendleton's long-standing presence in the town. It was a presence which began with a logging operation in the 19th century, leading to textile mills and eventual interest around the country. But the Pendleton interest had gone sour in recent years, and James Pendleton put his entire fortune on the line, investing in a power plant on the river. The future of that mansion on the hill depended directly on the plant across the river. It was a white shingled house with a series of houses surrounded by massive oaks and hefty green pine, forming a distinctive L shape from the air. Its many windows were boarded by dozens of Kelly Green shutters. The rear of the house, facing St. Argus, contained the first three Pendleton structures. A center building with large pane glass doors open to a patio in front of the oaks and the two adjoining structures were set back on either side. These buildings were constructed in the past century and capped by mammoth white chimneys stamped with a black P across the brick. Glass doors in the center were installed by Pendleton in the 1950s so he could effectively gaze down upon his town. Also in the 50s, he added another wing, completing the L shape. The entire mansion was redone and the rooms rearranged for Jamie in order to allow him to raise his family in the mansion. That would have been in the 70s and 80s as he gradually took over Pendleton Industries. That wing of the mansion, however, now was not occupied. The expensive furniture was all in place and the blinds pulled over the windows, covering up a future that was never to be. On this particular evening, there were a few lights burning inside that house, but the lights shined brightly from the second floor study, casting tiny glimmers on the fresh snow on the outside terrace, and the smoke poured out from the tall chimney of James Pendleton's study. He had gathered two of his closest associates into his home on that moonlit night. Their purpose was to discuss a matter of critical importance. Pendleton was about the same size as his estranged son, with a long nose and sturdy jaw. He had put on additional weight. Even his short hair had come back into style. Pendleton had never let his hair, now graying, touch his ears. He stood next to an eight-foot window, puffing away on his cigarette and studying the lights of the town below. He took a final drag on the cigarette and put it out in the ashtray and then he faced his associates, seated in the chairs around the room, looking like hungry dogs, ready to perform new tricks for their master. What I am telling you, gentlemen, is that, he said in a very cracky voice as he exhaled the smoke, is that I have stuck out my neck for this project. I have slaved with every drop of blood, sweat, and tears to make this power plant a reality. 
There have been times that you and I thought we wouldn't be able to do it, but we have. But Mr. Pendleton, said the fat man on his right. His belly was bulging through his pinstripe vest. What can your son do to us? You really think the plant is in danger? Al, said Pendleton as he raised his voice. Al, you heard the reports from my detectives in Los Angeles. Reports have come in now for six months. You've also heard them on the remote hookup back to LA. They told me that my son was snooping around in areas that could only lead in one direction. Universal power. And do I have to remind you what universal power really is? No, sir. No, sir. Universal power, he said, as he was going to tell them whether they wanted to hear it or not. Universal power represents the greatest breakthrough in the use of energy we've ever known. Damn it. Under the guise of that power plant, we have the potential to release the reserves of a power with such magnitude. Why... It could be unlimited. Yes, Mr. Pendleton. We are tapping the power of the universe, warping it, distorting it. The immense blast, he said, as he lit another cigarette. The immense blast that can be harnessed and converted into electricity. We run the hydro by day and the universal power by night. Excuse me, Mr. Pendleton. Yes, Edgar, what is it? Mr. Pendleton, I don't mean to be impertinent, he said stroking his neatly shaved mustache. But I just want very much to advise you, as others have, about the potential risk involved with such fortuitous power. We think that... I know what you think, bellowed Pendleton as he waved his cigarette through the air. You think there's far too much of what you call the unknown factor, things that have never been encountered. And you're living in the past, Edgar. Thinking like yours would have stopped all past inventions, all previous discoveries, the cures for diseases, and the advancement in technology. Can't you see that we are on the verge of a panacea, a panacea of ultimate energy? Maybe we've just gone too far, said Al. Maybe mankind can only control so much. We could test it further, argued Edgar. Exactly right, Edgar, exactly right. We should run more tests. That's why Universal will remain in operation only between the hours of 12 midnight and 4 a.m. until we are sure. But your son, said Al. Yes, my accursed son. This is my point. You know how I feel about my son's activities. He arrived in St. Argus with his so-called wife and two little brats less than two hours ago. They've stopped at their friend's home, the teacher, Weissman. He said as he looked down at the floor and thought for a few moments. Then he slowly raised his finger as he spoke. That is why, gentlemen, my son, James Pendleton II, must never be allowed to leave St. Argus with the knowledge that lies beneath the hillside. Because if he does, he yelled, his steel blue eyes reflecting the fireplace flames, he will alert the government. And he'll do that just to stop me, nothing more. He wants a coup de grace. No bloodshed, no implicating him, and if the government comes in on my investment, you know what will happen. I put my entire fortune into this. All of that fortune will fall by the wayside, and the environmental groups, the pickets, 
the bleeding hearts will all descend on St. Argus, just like they did on the nuclear power industry, and ruin it all for us before we've had a chance to prove what we're doing is right. And we will prove it, dammit, we will. My financial empire will once again grow from this tiny hamlet. It will grow like Edison's use of electricity. We will have the key, and they'll be begging for it, he said as he gazed into the fire. And it won't all be selfish, he added in a lower voice. This power will give people cheap energy and reduce world tensions. That is a goal worth achieving, and we can do it with my son out of the way. What are you saying? asked Edgar as both men stood. You mean sending him away, said Al. No, no, no. The only way to stop my able and persistent son is to kill him in his tracks. Kill him? Kill your own son? blurted Edgar. Are you mad? Are you questioning me, Edgar? No, 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 sir, but, but there must be other alternatives. There are no other alternatives. Don't you think I've thought this through? Over time, as I got the reports from Los Angeles, I saw that Jamie was consulting with theorists from around the country. Don't you think I've looked for other alternatives? Don't you? I did, and there are none. My son is much too persistent, much too ambitious, stubborn like me. And like me, he would use every last ounce of energy to win. And he might succeed, gentlemen, if I don't act first. Minos has already set him up and luring him into the plant. He will be killed. Pendleton was interrupted by the ringing telephone. He rushed over to the table and picked up the ornate brass phone. Still looking at the astonished men, he spoke directly into the mouthpiece. James Pendleton here. Oh yes, good, good, very good work. Now's the time, Minos. Now's the time. We're on our way over there now. Yes, just don't panic. Take it step by step. Yes, I will handle it. Goodbye. What is it, Mr. Pendleton? Asked Edgar at CNL, walked over to Pendleton. We're taking a little trip out to the plant, gentlemen, said Pendleton as he slid open the drawer to the telephone table. Like a crack sergeant, he pulled out a snub-nosed 38 revolver and checked the chamber. Then he snapped it back in place and glared up at the frightened men. You mean you're actually going to kill him yourself? Asked the unbelieving Edgar. Exactly right, Edgar. At least I will have the pleasure of taking from this earth what I have so mistakenly put on it. If your wife was alive. My wife has been dead for almost 20 years, Edgar. He said as he rang for the servants. Within seconds, a butler appeared outside the study door. Yes, Mr. Pendleton. He said as he opened it, and Pendleton's lumbering Dobermans came rushing into the study. They rushed up to their master and affectionately jumped up to him. There, there, boy. Good dogs. Jonathan, have Jenkins bring the car around. I'll be driving myself tonight. Yourself, sir? Yes. My orders aren't clear. Very clear, sir, he said as he gently closed the door. Everyone under Pendleton was always ready to respond to his orders. Once the decision had been made, they would follow him. Edgar and Al marched behind him from the room in a military cadence knowing from whence their own power came, and gladly obliging that power, even if it meant marching to the gates of hell. Join us next time for My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.